0: Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are always faithful. We thank you, Lord, that your mercy is on you every morning. We thank you, Lord, that heaven sings over us and that you are singing over us. We thank you, Lord, that creation sings over over us. us. And this morning, Lord, we want to, as we look into your word, I pray that you would inspire us by the Holy Spirit to see what a gift it is to worship you and that we would express that in a myriad of creative ways. And Lord, I simply trust you for that. This morning, in Jesus' name, Amen. Are you recording that? Okay. I stole the title of this message from a Chris Tomlin song. Uh, it's a, a, a beautiful song which says, um, "You and I were made to worship." Do you remember we sing that song? And so, the title of my message this morning is to love and worship Him forever. To love and worship Him forever, and I just like to read a couple of scriptures to you out of uh, the first out of Revelation. Verse, chapter 5, verse 6. I asked Matt to put the scriptures up there, and uh, it's from the English Standard Version. If you can read it, it says this. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll, from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Isn't that amazing? This image of the prayers of the saints in the throne room of God. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scrolls and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from... God from every tribe, every nation, and every language and people. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on all the earth. Man, I love that picture of worship. Every tribe, every people group, every tongue, every nationality, redeemed cultures, worshipping God, the author of all good things to us. Amen? It's a heavenly picture of worship for us. And it goes on and says, when I looked, And I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, don't anyone tell you that worship cannot be loud because worship is loud in heaven. It says here, with a loud voice they proclaimed the goodness of God. And they said this, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne, and the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. Amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. Man, if you are not a person that enjoys singing songs and singing creatively and dancing and expressing your worship by lying flat on your face or weeping before God, you better get used to it because that's what we are destined for. That is our eternity to worship Him forever and to love Him and adore Him. That is our destiny. That is what you and I were born for and that's where we're going. And I, wanted, I want to ask you to you set yourselves free by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning that we can express our worship in a myriad of creative ways before our God, who is worthy of all worship. I guess the question that you and I have to face for ourselves, every single one of us, and you, uh, it's amazing to me as I've been thinking about this, sometimes you don't ever resolve this, and there are people who are at the end of the lives still asking this question of each other. Who am I? and why am I here? And sadly for many, that question is never answered, and there's a desperation in people, and many might even say, well, I don't even know who I am and why I was born. Uh, A.W. Tozer, a beautiful, wonderful writer, he he, um, describes it, he says, humanity has got this kind of amnesia, this kind of loss of memory. It's like they were whacked hard on the head, and they can't quite remember why they are here and what they are doing on the face of this planet. Well, it goes back to Adam and Eve. I want to read with you from Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. You there? I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says this, Adam said, And to Adam God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim with a flaming sword that turned away every guard, uh, turned away, turned every way, sorry, to guard the way to the tree of life. You know the story well uh, of the parents of, of you and I, Adam and Eve. And Adam had this amazing fall because of sin. And in a sense, he really did crack his head open uh, and bash his head. And Eve was part of that of that catastrophe as well. And they stumbled around afterwards in this kind of fog, not knowing who they were. It says they were naked, and then they try to cover themselves with, with um, skins. There's a sense of guilt that immediately came, not knowing who they were, why they were alive, and the reason for their existence. And ever since then alienated men and women have been walking this planet saying, I don't know who I am and I don't know why I was born. Ever since then. But I believe God never does anything without a purpose. Amen? I believe that God had a noble purpose in mind when He created us. I believe it was the will of God that men and women created in His image would desire to fellowship with Him above all else. It was going to be a, it was, it was. planned to be a perfect fellowship based on a, the adoring worship of the Creator and Sustainer of all things. And that's why that classic question is posed in the Catechism. For those of you that have an uh, Anglican uh, background, what is the chief end of man, the Catechism says. And the reply is quite simply, it's a simple and profound answer and it is the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You and I were made to worship. You and I were born to worship. That's the chief end of man, of, of any man or any woman. Why then have so many people missed it? If that's what God intended, why do so few know God's love and so few know God's plan for them? Why do so many end up in hopeless, hopelessness and despair, saying, "I don't even know why I'm on the face of the planet"? Is it that God's will has been frustrated? Is that all we have to say to the world? Is that all we have to declare? Well, we read from Genesis and it gives us some clues in terms of what God had in mind. But the, the root issue is when Adam and Eve decided that they had the right to put their own wills above the will of their Creator, they experienced this terrible fall that we call the fall of man. And at that moment, they lost their God given identity. At that moment, they did. And that's the ultimate tragedy that we've been dealing with ever since. You see, because they were created, Adam and Eve were created, to mirror the Almighty God and to be a reflection on earth of His glory. Isn't that an amazing thought? That's why we were created. To be a reflection of the glory of God here on earth. And God created man so that he could see, look look at him and see reflected there His own glory. But now that mirror was damaged because of sin, it's dimmed, it's blurred, it's kind of out of focus. And when God looked on sinful man, he could no longer see his, his glory. It was additionally tragic, and this is for me, is, 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 has been a great lesson in my life about what sin is. Because sin, right at that moment, when God challenges Adam and Eve, they resort to blaming somebody else. Adam blames. Eve Eve blames the serpent says the serpent made me do it right in that moment the art of laying blame for sin in our own lives was learnt and that's the nature of sin sin always tries to deflect the blame onto somebody else it's not my fault it's ultimately their fault so perhaps you're not the person you'd like to be this morning perhaps you feel there's a sense that you haven't quite reached your full potential well there's a couple of options it's easy to blame your wife it's her fault. She, she, hasn't, she hasn't released me into my destiny. It's easy to blame your history. Oh, I didn't get a good education. You know, I, that's, it's, it's all history's fault. It's easy to blame where you work. You know, People at work don't recognize me, and I'm, there's always this battle at work. It's easy to blame your parents. Oh, you know, my parenting wasn't all that it should be, and that's why I am like I am today. Sin, being what it is, rather tries to lay the blame on others. That's the nature of sin. Blame others, blame others, blame others. And that's why our, 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 our jails are full of people, the mental hospitals are full of people that have struggled with fierce issues, never resolved them, and that's the, that's, the, that's the end result of that kind of thinking. All stemming from this great tragedy, the disaster that we call the fall of man. Now this is a good news message this morning. It is. So is that as good as it gets? Is that all we can declare to the world, that what God intended was broken? Well, no. And we say loudly a resounding no to the world. We've got great news for the world because the good news is that God who created us has not given up on us. Someone, someone can say amen to that because that's good news. He still wants us to mirror His glory. Amen. Of course He still wants us to mirror His glory. He still wants us to worship Him and enjoy Him forever. And His plan was Christ, was Jesus. The miracle of the incarnation who walked on earth and reflected the glory of God as He walked on this earth. And the scripture says He is the radiance and the exact likeness of the fullness of God. Isn't that amazing? And He walked this earth and reflected the Father's glory. So when Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father, what he meant was this. When you see me, you are seeing the Father's glory reflected. And I have come to finish the work that God gave me to do. That's what Jesus was saying. The fullness of the, of the glory of God. God was glorified in his Son, and through his death and resurrection, he was redeeming us back to himself. Amen? He was bringing us back to our original purpose, and our original purpose was to be mirrors of his glory. Worship of God is the whole reason that we exist. That's why we were born again. That's why we were born, and that's why we were born again from above. That's why we were created, and that's why we are recreated. That is why there is a church. The church simply exists to worship God. That's why we exist. That's the ultimate purpose of why we exist. Everything else comes after that. All the good stuff that people do must come out of a place of worshipping Him, the author and perfecter of all good things. And I believe church, Forest Town Church, I believe that's what God is doing in all of us. Every single one of us that are part of this. It might, uh, this church, it might feel, feel painful as God redefines some things in our lives. It might be awkward as He reshapes us and all that we are going through in our individual lives and as a church. But it's simply because God desires to see His glory in this local church and in His church worldwide. That's what God has in His heart for us. He wants us to reflect His glory. Can anyone say amen? And I believe too that God is removing everything that does not glorify and honor His name in our lives and as a church so that we can worship Him passionately and unreservedly. That's what He has for us in mind. That's why I said at the beginning, we better get used to the idea of worship because that's all we're going to do in eternity one day is continually sing new songs about how much we love Him. Yeah, yeah. That's my first point. I've tried it. This is a three-point sermon. That was the first point, right? Here's the second point. That you and I are being prepared for worship. Prepared. What do I mean by that? Well, can I ask this morning that we don't ever allow ourselves to exchange a high view of God and His eternity for a short-term view of the here and now? You see, there can be a clash between our impatience, which tries to provide short-term answers to problems, and God, who's concerned ultimately with our eternal destiny. There can be a clash that exists there. And it's only when we see God's eternal perspective that you and I can say of our troubles that we experience now, as Paul did, that they are light and momentary. (laughs) How many of you have been under pressure at work? or your work has been, your job has been under pressure. For how many of you does that feel like a light and momentary trouble? Anyone? It doesn't feel like a light and momentary trouble when you are engaged in the process of having to provide for your family and trusting God for finances. It doesn't seem light and momentary. But in the light of eternity, in the light of what God has in store for you and I, it is a light and momentary trouble when we start to see the bigness of who He is. That's what Paul says. And he's talking about being beaten and shipwrecked seven times. <laughs> and they're getting the forty nine lashes and a number of times. Oh, these are light and momentary troubles. And if we have an eternal perspective of who God is, we can also say, like Paul, that we call all things, count all things as rubbish. We count them all as done compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus our Lord. Amen. And I want to say, I feel like God is not in a hurry with us. You know, we live in a technical, technological age that has made us instant techno-junkies. Everything has to come like this. Instantly. So whether it's Twitter, or whether it's emails or SMSs, it's like instant communication, instantly, anywhere over the world. You can follow someone on Twitter, you can follow your best preacher, or your favorite person from America, and he can Twitter you each day and tell you exactly what he's doing. He's taking out his garbage, he's kind of going for a drive down to McDonald's to get his burger. I mean, it's amazing. Instant communication. But we have to understand our lives through the lens of eternity. And when we do that, we understand that this life is simply a preparation for an eternity of extravagant, untainted, consuming worship of God. That's what we're being prepared for. Is anyone with me this morning? Because that's what we are being prepared for. God knows exactly what he's doing with you and I. He won't break us. His scripture says there's there's nothing, it never takes us further than what we can endure and his grace is sufficient for each of us. So I want to encourage you guys, all of you, every single one. Whatever you're facing, whatever season your life is, if, you are, if you're secure in your work, that's great. If you're trusting God for work, I want to tell you, His grace is sufficient for you. He will never take you to the point that you cannot endure. Okay? And we are safe. He is sovereign. Ultimately, we are safe in His hands, and He repeatedly allows us to be tested, and He strengthens us, He tests us, and He strengthens us. And though that might feel unbearable at times and fragile at times, His grace is holding us in the palm of His hand. And that's why James can write in James chapter 1 verse 2, and he writes and says, Count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, or perseverance have its full effect, so that you might be perfect and complete Lacking nothing. You and I are being prepared. And I included a Solzhenitsyn quote. Uh, for those of you who know, he was a Russian writer, endured the gulags of Stalin. And he said this: He said, Even nature teaches us that perpetual well-being is not good for any living thing. All right? And he should know that. His life and his destiny are were forged in the gulags, in the Soviet gulags, when Stalin was persecuting millions of people and in the sub-zero freezing temperatures of those gulags in Siberia. His destiny was forged in that place where he had to persevere for his life. And after that time in exile, he emerged as a powerful, powerful voice for truth, for freedom, from human tyranny in the face of the things that he was was, uh, uh, subject to. What did it do? What did it produce produce in him? It produced a man who didn't fear death. It produced a man who took a stand for things of eternal value. And that's what you and I have to trust for in our own lives. Hard times are God's preparing times. Do you want to repeat that? Hard times are God's preparing times. We don't like to hear that, do we? Hard times are God's preparing times. He's shaping us into worshippers. He's shaping us into lovers. He's shaping us into those that find their completeness in Him alone. And we learn that nothing truly satisfies except Him. That's what we learn in hard times. There's so many things that demand our attention, so many things that demand our priorities. There's so many things that can become our dependencies and our comfort in hard times. But ultimately, difficulty in difficult times brings us to a place of coming to the end of ourselves and of our self-sufficiency, to a place of truly seeing God as the only one who can come through for us, the only one who's worthy of adoration and of our total dependency. Amen. You know, when you get, first get saved, there's an amazing sense of, of just appreciating everything and... And so understanding that God set you free from your past. And something of our worship might even just be uh, that he, we're so thankful that He answers our prayers and that he, every step of the way God seems to be helping us along. But then this comes to a place where it seems like your prayers aren't being inst- instantly answered. <laughs> and sometimes you have to walk through a fence and feeling hurt. And sometimes we find that God allows us to lose our job. Or someone in our family gets very ill and we have to walk through that process and trust God at a completely different level. Well, James says that the end result of that is that we are being trained for maturity and trained to become worshippers of God who see Him for who He is. That's why we are taken through these times of perseverance. God has taken every single one of us on a journey of being worshippers who are worship in spirit and truth. And our journey of this maturing in Christ is not just a Sunday thing. It's not just a Sunday thing. It's about our whole life. It's about our whole character. And God is interested in every aspect of our lives, bringing glory to Him from uh, from who we are in private where no one else sees to how we are in our workplace and ultimately how we are with our family and how we are as friends together in this community. God is interested in all of that. And when there's a growing maturity in our lives, we can start to bear disappointment and handle gracefully times when we are overlooked or misunderstood or slandered or because we have faith in a sovereign God who loves us and is watching over us and we can trust in Him. And so God allows us to go through these personal journeys so that we can begin to learn to worship Him with the faith that Paul and Silas had. And I, that's one of my favorite stories in the whole of the New Testament. About midnight, it says in the book of Acts, and James, the, 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 James has just had his head chopped off, so Paul, Paul and Silas knew that that was a possibility for them, that they too could be martyred. And it says, about midnight, they were singing hymns, and they were singing through the jail bars, and God broke it open, Miraculously. It's a different thing to worship when you feel like you're in jail. It's a different thing to sing at the top of your voice with faith when you feel like the bars are around you. That's the kind of worshipers God is seeking. those who can worship in spirit and truth, taking the eyes off the circumstances around them and saying, "God, I trust you sovereignly for my, my future." Amen. You know, as we walk through these persevering trials. Uh, I think our emphasis becomes less about me and about what I want and more about Him and knowing His unfathomable love and trusting His sovereign wisdom for my life. That's part of the process. That was my second point. Third point. That we become awed by the presence of God. Awed by the presence of God. I'm so grateful for the grace of God that's made a way for all of us. And the wonderful thing is that the grace of God deals with the eternal and it deals with the here and now, all at the same time. (laughs) God made the earth and the heavens and all that's in it. God made man in His image. He breathed life into us. And God said, now live in my presence and worship me. That was His plan. And sometimes we might hear someone say, oh, they've discovered God as if they've comprehended Him intellectually. But when we read Isaiah, there's a beautiful picture of a, a, a man who grasps something far deeper than an intellectual understanding of God. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 says this. And if you'd like to go there and read with me, or you can read up there. It says, In the yoking Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that was been taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Amen. (laughs) And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, here I am. Send me. Oh, what an amazing, powerful story. Up to that point, Isaiah, he had been familiar with all the good things that God had created, but he'd never been introduced to the presence of the uncreated one. Isaiah could have tried a million years to to reach God with his intellect but would never have succeeded. But the living God, within a very, very short space of time, can reveal to Himself to anyone whose heart is open and whose heart is willing. Instantly, God can reveal Himself. And we read in verse 5 that Isaiah has a sudden revelation of himself. And as he sees the living God, what happens? He's overcome with the depth of his own depravity and his own need of God, before one who is ultimately holy. And it says, verse 5, And the foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of him called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe to me, for I am lost. Amazing. This revelation comes instantly, in a moment, to this young man. He was a commendable young man. He was uh, cultured. He was religious. He was even a cousin of the king. We know that. He was a cousin of the king. And today, he would have made a good leader in any church situation. He was the right guy for the job. But here, in the presence of God, as he's confronted with the presence of God in this uh, amazing way, he's struck with awe and the whole world dissolves, in a sense, in the face of who God is, the brightness of who God is. So there can be many that might think they know everything about God, many who can explain everything about God, about his creation, his thoughts, his judgments. But when we are faced with the overwhelming presence of the living God, we are silenced. And all we can respond with is, God, you know all things. And that can never be a glib or casual or indifferent thing when we are in the presence of God. And isn't it interesting, as as we read on the story of Isaiah, the first thing that he becomes aware of is his lips. He says, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Why? Because he knew the words of Solomon. And what did Solomon say? He said that out of the overflow of the heart, a man speaks. What is in the heart comes out of the mouth. And his lips condemned him because they were evidence of what was in his heart. When we come into the presence of God, the awesome presence of God, our words and our conversations are, are weighed in the light of His holiness and who He is. And at that point, there's no other option but to be convicted of our own sinfulness and our own need of His grace in in our lives. But isn't God merciful? Because we read on and it just says God simply sends a seraphim. And the seraphim comes and it's a burning coal. And it cleanses his mouth and atones for Isaiah's sin. The good news is always, in the presence of God, we might be convicted of sin in the presence of God. We might become aware of our own frailties, our own lack of judgment, our own lack of whatever. But at the same time, in the presence of God, you and I are reminded of the atoning work of Christ. You and I are reminded that He washes us clean, that He makes and purifies our hearts, and that our sin, although scarlet, is now as white as snow. That's what the presence of God does. It's an amazing thing. You're reminded instantly of who you are and the, the lack of, of goodness in your own soul and at the same time you're reminded instantly of the grace and the goodness of God in your life and the, the purity, pure, purity of, the, of the blood that is available to you and I. And then we receive a fresh outpouring of grace, a fresh outpouring of forgiveness. And verse 8 says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. When we come into God's presence, all the other things that clamor for our attention, all the other distractions cease. And we hear God's voice clearly for our lives. We are able to overhear the conversation of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit speaking together. That's what happens to Isaiah. He overhears this conversation of the Trinity and saying, asking who will go for us. And he responds, Yes, I'll go. Isn't that amazing? God wants to share his heart, his desires with us. He longs us, he wants us to know his plans and his purposes. And it's in his presence as we still ourselves and let all those other distractions be stilled that we are able to hear what God has for us. You know, when Isaiah responds, the only way to describe it is he's passionate, there's an unreserved, unrestrained glee in his life. Yeah, I'll go, am, yeah, send me. It's a beautiful thing. He can't help himself. He just he responds without trying to weigh up all the options that he has. Think of all the consequences if he makes this decision. No, it's just an instantaneous response from his heart. Lord, here I am. Send me. I'll do it. In the presence of God, we are moved to a place of delighted, delightful spontaneity. <laughs> it's eager obedience. It's happy service to God. It's just like a responding of our hearts, and open-heartedness. Lord, whatever. Rob Rufus said, um, my name is Jimmy. Take what you give me. Isn't that right? It's just like, God, whatever. I, I, just, I get to do stuff and I'm, I'm happy because you've touched my life. You've transformed me. You've forgiven my sin. I'm so grateful, Lord. I just want to pull myself out. So, my friends, I want to ask the musicians to come up, please. Let's worship... From that place this morning. He's made a way open for us to come into his presence. There's nothing greater for us than his presence and his unending love for you and I. There's nothing greater for us. So whatever you're facing today, whatever challenge you have today, whatever situation you are facing, I want to encourage you, I want to invite you to come and worship, knowing that He's watching over you, knowing that He's faithful. Knowing that He is committed to seeing His good purpose worked out in your life, I want to invite you to come and worship. I want to invite you that you would come and hear the words that God has from heaven for you, for your life. That you might receive cleansing fire for your life. That you might respond with a new passion in your life. Why? Because He alone is worthy. He alone, above all the other clamorings and strivings in our lives, He alone is worthy. And in this holy sense of His presence, we can worship Him from the heart. I want to encourage, I want to invite you to stand and worship with us and let God come and do what He wants to do in your life this morning.